looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, and we want to uh, read this together. Um, we'll read it aloud. I will start with you, and then you can continue reading uh, through the passage. Let's read. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Continue reading. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the richness of your word. We pray uh, that this afternoon, Lord, that we will clearly see what we need to see in your word, that we would know you more and see you more clearly, even as a result of having been here today. Lord, take um, my efforts and take the efforts of each one here, uh, and Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit on all of it so that, Lord, our hearts will be transformed to see you, know you, and live for you in a way that brings great glory to Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Um, as I get started today, before we jump into the Word, I want to say something. I, I'm not trying to offend people on purpose when I say it, but it will offend some of you, I'm sure. Um, as I grew up, I hated cheerleaders. I did not like cheerleaders, like not even a little bit. I remember saying, I will never date a cheerleader. I would never marry a cheerleader. I don't want nothing to do with cheerleaders. And the reason is because I played sports, particularly basketball, and I just remember at times getting so uh, uh, mad when, like I remember this one time, our team was like 53 points behind in the basketball game. That rarely happened because of my skills, but <laughs> this particular game, we were like, wait, we were getting crushed. And so we're getting crushed in this game, and I look at the cheerleaders, and they're like smiling like we're, you know, 50 points ahead in the game, but we're behind, we're getting crushed, we're looking at each other, we're mad. The cheerleaders are just smiling, they're happy. Go, team, go, fight, team, fight. Win, team, win. I'm like, win? We're getting killed here. Like, are, is there any reality check on your peppiness at all? There's like no reality check at all. And so, you know, I remember some of the other teams, uh, some of the other cheers. Uh, my, my high school was called Oneida High School. 
And there was this one chair. I'm like, it doesn't make any sense to me. They would say, take it easy, take it slow. Hey, Oneida, let's go. Now, we're playing basketball. We're trying to outrun the other team, outfight the other team, grab a rebound, make a shot. You know, we're trying to do all these things. They're saying, take it easy. Take it slow. Hey, Oneida, let's go. I'm like, this makes no sense at all to me. So I, I'm growing more and more. I'm just struggling with cheerleaders. Now, here's the funny thing. When it was time for God to put the right woman in my life for, uh, to be married, he gave me a cheerleader. Harriet not only was a cheerleader in high school, but also in college. So she's like a full, total, like, cheerleader. It's ridiculous. Now, I think God, God knew that I needed a, such a person in my life because if you've known me for a little while, you know that I'm often 53 points behind in the game of life. And I need someone that can see past all that and say, go, Larry, go. Fight, Larry, fight. Win, Larry, win. So I thank God that he put her uh, in my life and sovereignly gave me what I did not ask for, a cheerleader. But God is good. Um, there's one cheer, though, particularly that I was thinking of that, that helped me think of this passage. And the, the cheerleaders would sometimes cheer this cheer. What you see is what you get. And you ain't seen nothing yet. Right? I mean, they, they're just all pepped up. What you see is what you get, and you ain't seen nothing yet. Now, as we look at this passage, the title from this passage comes from that. What you see is what you get. What you see is what you get. We want to look and walk through this passage and see what we mean by that. Paul is writing this letter to a little church, the smallest, least significant church of any of the letters that we have in the New Testament to a little place called Colossae. It, it's, it was so small then and, and even now, they've never done, biblical archaeologists have done digs all over the Holy Land, all over Palestine. They've never, and all over uh, um, Turkey and, and Asia Minor, they've never done a dig at Colossae. Because it was just this little town. There was, no, there was no big deal. So they've never even bothered to do that. But Paul wrote a letter to this little town. And he wrote it because he got a report that deeply disturbed him. Paul didn't even uh, uh, plant the church. It was planted by a guy named Epaphras. And Epaphras was an associate of Paul's. But Epaphras comes to Paul. Paul is probably writing this uh, from prison in Rome somewhere around 62 uh, A.D. And so uh, Epaphras comes and he tells him of this strange heresy that's coming into Colossae. It's different than the Galatian heresy. It's different than some of the other things we see in some of the other New Testament books. And Paul is deeply disturbed by it. And he's writing this letter in response to it. Let me just give you a couple characteristics of the heresy. First of all, it was a philosophical and religious system that affirmed that there were many layers of spiritual powers and beings that were all around that could manipulate, these powers could manipulate circumstances in the world, and so they were beholden to these powers. They had to do what they could 
to, to, to work through things so that these powers would serve them correctly. But with all of that, they did not let any one of the powers reign supreme over the others. Now, does that sound like any place, anywhere you know at all? To me, it sounds a little bit like our culture today. It's great to be spiritual. It's great to even talk about God if you want to. But don't start putting Jesus Christ as Lord and sovereign king above all things, right? So, so this is what's going on in Colossae. And also, just a few other things about this heresy. Uh, they, they had a belief that all matter was evil. So anything that you can hold on to, you can touch, you can feel, that, that is by itself evil. The human body itself. Is, is worthless and evil. They, they had legalistic and ascetic practices uh, that they used as a way to actually placate all these spiritual beings. In other words, to manipulate them to get the good result for themselves. So we'll do these certain things, kind of like witchcraft nearly, right? We'll do certain things in order to manipulate these deities with a small d all around us. Um, and lastly, in the Colossian heresy, salvation was experienced through entering into this deeper level of knowledge. I mean, you had to be one of these super deep dudes that could really, you had to really go deep in order to, to be saved under this system. So Paul gets word of this, he gets wind of this, and he is troubled deeply in his spirit. And so he writes this letter. And with most of his letters, we see at the beginning, he greets them. He, he gives thanks for certain good things that are happening there. And he prays for them. But then he goes into this powerful section that we see right here to talk about the greatness of Christ. My one main point today, the, the, the name of it is what you see is what you get. But the one main idea is this, seeing Jesus clearly transforms everything in your life. Seeing Jesus clearly transforms everything in your life. So under that, I've got four uh, minor points. So here's the first one. Seeing, here, here's the first thing we need to see is we need to see who Jesus is. We need to see clearly who Jesus is. So Paul jumps in here in verse 15. He uses, he starts with this. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the image of the invisible God. The Greek word there is icon. You know, an icon is something that stands for something else, right? Uh, he is the, the, the living representation that can be seen of the eternal God who has never been seen. He says that Jesus is the, the representative of God who can be seen in this world. So the, the, the word has different connotations, but one is the sense of the likeness of God. So when you look in the mirror, you see your image, right? You see your image or on a coin, you'll see the image of a president, right? So he says he is the image of God. He is the way Jesus Christ is the way that we can see the one true God. He's making that point. It also means he is the manifestation of of the person of God himself. So when you watch Jesus, when you hear Jesus, when you see how he walks and what he does, he says, you are confronting God himself, eternal preeminent God himself, not some underling of God. 
you are you are encountering God himself. So much so that Jesus was able to say when Philip was trying to figure out uh, what was going on as Jesus was about to go to the cross. Philip says, Jesus, if you just show us the father, that would be enough. Jesus looks at Philip and says, yo, Phil, have I been with you this long and you don't understand? If you have seen me, you've seen the father. You see, so so Jesus is this this image. Um, if you hang around with me for a while in crowds, you'll notice I there's a game that I I play a lot. I call it the celebrity game. So. Wherever I go, I see celebrities a lot. Um, just last week, I was on a college campus in, uh, in, in Virginia, and I saw Hulk Hogan. Now, how did I know it was Hulk Hogan? This is how. He had a mustache that was gray, went like that, and straight down like that. He had a couple muscles. Now, the Hulk Hogan I saw was also about five foot three in flip-flops, but it was close enough that I said, there's Hulk Hogan. And, I, and, and then what, what you do is you talk about, well, why, how, how come he's Hulk Hogan? And you can, you can kind of get it. I see celebrities all the time. I see Tom Cruise like every other day. <laughs> I just need a kind of short white guy who's got a little muscle and can run really fast as Tom Cruise. So I see it all the time. But so so in that game, you just look, oh, it looks a little bit like and then you can explain it and say, OK, that's so and so. That's not what Jesus is like in comparison to God. Hebrews says he is the exact imprint of his image. He's exactly God. He is God. So so he, he, he's telling them to see, first of all, let's see who he is. He's God himself. Now, now look at. Uh, I want to go through a few of these verses and just look at w one thing that is prevalent here. First of all, it says in verse 16. Well, I'll start. I'll finish verse 15. He's the firstborn of all creation. Now, some have taken that to mean, aha, so Jesus himself was created. He's the firstborn of all creation. Let me give you a really good lesson on hermeneutics. If the Bible says something like real, real clear, then you take that and interpret something that's maybe not quite as clear to you, right? So look at the beginning of verse 16. For by him all things were created. Okay? If he created all things, he ain't created himself. That's an impossibility. And so the Jehovah Witnesses that have that doctrine have inserted here and in several other places in this passage, he created all other things. It's not in any Greek manuscript. It's not in any manuscript of the Bible ever. It's not in any other translation, but they had to put it in there to maintain that Jesus isn't God, the creator. But the Bible says he is. He created all things. Now, now just look at this emphasis on all things. Verse 16 at the beginning, for by him all things were created. Look at the end of verse 16. All things were created uh, through him and for him. Beginning of verse 17 says, in him all things hold together. Then he uses words like everything in verse 18 and fullness in verse 19 and comes back in verse 20 and says, through him to reconcile to himself all things, all things. So he uses this one phrase 
over and over again. And that phrase is a phrase that really they used at that time in, 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 in Greek, kind of like the way we would use the term the universe or the cosmos. It means everything that exists, everything that is. Like if Paul was writing this to Philadelphia 2014, he might say he is the creator of every single John. <laughs> if you're from Philly, you know what I mean. If you're not, you're like, what did he just say? Is it a John? Is it what did he say? No, it's a John. You, you can like substitute that in your Bible. Wherever it says all things, just say every single John. And if you're from Philly, you'll be tracking with the Bible. That's a good thing. So, so this emphasis is on everything comes under Jesus. He's on top. He's above. He's separated from in that sense. And he's overall every single John. Now look at verse 16. Because verse 16 in explaining this uses three prepositional uh, phrases that are helpful. He says at the beginning, for by him all things were created. By him. That is, Jesus is the conditioning cause of creation. It was by Jesus that this is able to happen. And then towards the end of that verse, it says all things were created through him. That's another preposition. It means Jesus is the mediating agent of creation. Creation can't come into being. It can't go around Jesus and create. So when you look at Genesis 1-1, in the beginning was, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus is right there. It doesn't go around Jesus. Not just the Father and the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus, this guy who we just saw a few years ago, if you're a Colossian, he was in flesh like me and you, but he created everything that is. He's the mediating agent of creation. And not only that, look at the end of that verse. It says not only through him, but it also says and for him. Everything that has been created, every blade of grass, every rock, every piece of sand, every drop of water, every human being, every planet, every sun, everything is created for Jesus who is the Christ. He is the creator and he is the purpose. So, so this means that not only is he mediating in, in, in the conditioning cause, but he is the ultimate end and the goal and the purpose of all of creation. And he has the right to say what it ought to be used for, right? Because he's the one who created it in the first place. Let me give you an illustration. Some of you in this room are foodies and I know it. I have seen the pictures on Facebook. So, so some of you love to create a wonderful meal, right? Anybody in here love to create a wonderful meal for someone else to enjoy and to bask in the wonder of the beauty of your created food, your creator. And so when, when you're about to do that, you go out to, to stores, right, that, that sell, if, if, if it's chicken or salmon or something like that, you go out to stores that sell it at four times the price than I can get it at ShopRite because you, you need the Whole Foods chicken, right? Uh, 
a, a chicken that was running around in Nebraska somewhere along the road, and they just got that chicken, right? Organic chicken. So you, you get like the best stuff. You get just the right spices, and you get uh, just the right things, and you prepare it meticulously the way that it will be succulent and wonderful. And then you put little garnishes around the plate, make it really nice, and then you take a picture and put it on Facebook. Look what I did. I'm a creator, right? So your friends come over, and everybody's excited about this wonderful meal. And uh, your friends say, by the way, it's a beautiful day outside. Why don't we eat this on the porch? And you say, you know, it is a beautiful day. And the ambiance of the wind and the outside and all that, it will just simply add to the wonder of this meal which I have created. And so you go out on the porch. They take like a biscuit or a, a piece of bread that you did buy at ShopRite, everything else you made by hand, and they eat. They begin eating that. And then there's some stray cats walking by. And so they take the plate and they take their, their knife and they just scrape it off, say, this is for the cats. You're going to find out just how sanctified you are. <laughs> I mean, that would like you created that you created it to be enjoyed by a human being, by your friend. Right. But I can see you saying like uh, a five year old might say, you're not my friend no more. <laughs> what did you just do? Right. I made this for you. You created it for a reason and for a purpose. And you expected you had a rightful expectation that it would be used for the purpose that it was created for. And yet they used it for a common thing. How much more does God who created us through Jesus Christ, how much more does Jesus have a right to say uh, and a say in every single element and aspect of your life? And of my life. He's our creator. He's our creator. So. We see here, look, look in the middle of verse 16 again, he says, by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, another way of saying everything, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, he begins to talk about different categories and he knows that. For the Colossians in particular, they had all these different levels of spiritual beings. And and because they were aware of all the spiritual activity around them, they they had to act in a certain way to placate these angelic hosts and deities and all of these things. So there is a fear that runs through them about all of these powers that are out there. And yet the word says that. Uh, he is above all of them. They were created by him. If there's anything created, rulers, authorities, dominions and powers, they're under Jesus Christ. And yet you have a group of people who are fearing all these other things. Let me tell you, false religion will always cause you to fear someone or something other than the true God. It will always do that. And so uh, wh whatever you live in fear of in your life, even today, realize you're putting that thing or that person in the place of God. Right. What are you afraid of? 
What, what moves you to do things you normally would not do? Think on those things, what people think about you. My goodness, how many of us have made God small and people very, very big? Right? So we have all these other things. Having enough, ne never wanting again. So some, some of us build our lives around possessions, material wealth, upon making sure that we've got everything that we'll ever need. Now, that's, there's a legitimate place for, make, for working hard and knowing what we need, but there's not a legitimate place for living in fear of that, right, and allowing that to dictate our lives. So in so many ways we do that. So what, what Paul is saying to this church and what God is saying through him, even to us, is that Jesus is not just one of many, but Jesus is the one and only. You weren't created by an angelic being. In reality, you weren't even created by mom and dad. Because before mom and dad were, you were already in the mind of God. Amen? I used to tell my kids that. They thought the mind of God was somewhere in Idaho. But it's not. But you, before you were created, God had planned out all your days. Right? You're created by Jesus. You're created for Jesus, nothing else and no one else. Verse 17, he's before all things. In him all things hold together. The molecules and the protons and the neutrons and the electrons in every atom, if it wasn't for the work of Christ, the ongoing sustaining reality of this one who is King of kings and Lord of lords, everything would not hold together, would blow apart and disintegrate. He's at work. Verse 18, he's the head of the body, the church. So he's reminding them, whatever these other preachers are trying to tell you about these other false deities, listen, Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is always the head of the church, not someone that comes in with a hat that says, I'm an apostle or a bishop. Or a backwards collar that says, look, I am the priest or the elder or the pastor. Jesus is always the head of his church. we got to know that. Any pastor that is worth his salt knows that deeply and treasures that greatly. Because if Jesus is the head of the church, then the welfare and the well-being of the church is in the hands of the one who won't let it down. Amen. Boy, if it's in my hands, if it's in our hands, even the, the Epiphany elders, I thank God for all my brothers. I thank God for Pastor Mason as a lead pastor. But we are under authority, and Jesus is the head of his church. So he says in verse 19, For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. See, we need to see Jesus clearly. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus. What does that mean? It means that everything that makes God God is right there in Jesus. It's not 99.9% .9 like ivory soap. It's 100, right? Everything that makes God God is right there in Jesus. So we need to see Jesus clearly. Secondly, we need to see who we are. See who you are without Jesus. Verse 21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, 
he is now reconciled. See, it's a good thing to remind ourselves of what life without Jesus was. Maybe for some people here is. But to know that without Jesus, he says, you were once alienated. That word means to be estranged. It means to be a foreigner. It means to be excluded from a group. You had nothing to do with this group. Back in the day, Sesame Street, three of these things belong together. One of these things is not quite the same, right? So you have some sand, you have a little pail, and you have a little shovel, and then you have an elephant. Which one doesn't belong together, right? It's obvious. The elephant doesn't belong with that. The other stuff is a day at the beach. I hope an elephant does not break in on my day at the beach, right? But it's very different. He's saying that's the way you were in terms of God's family. You had no correspondence to the family of God. You were alienated, foreign, and distinct from the family of God. It had nothing to do with you. And he says, not only were you alienated, but you were hostile in mind. Like you did not want to hear what God had to say, right? Now, some, some of you were really bad sinners, and some of you were like really nice, good sinners. I know. I know. You don't have to lie. But some of you, when, whenever you thought, oh, this is some of God's commands, or whatever, you're like, I don't want that. I'm just going to break all of that. Some of you said, yeah, oh, that's good, that's good. But there was some way, there was something where you said, oh, no, I won't go there. I will not bow my knee to that God. I'm not going to do that. You were hostile in mind. And lastly, it says you were doing evil deeds. It's interesting in the Greek text here that's behind this, there's actually not a verb there for doing. Um, it's actually just a, a, a prepositional phrase that says, literally it says, you were in deeds of evil. That, that, that's like the way that phrase reads. You were in deeds of evil. The way I think about it is, imagine like a child that jumps in a pool and just, you know, you got your little, what do they call those things you put on your arms? You got your floaties on, you know, and you're in the pool with your buddies and you're just going at it. You're just enjoying it. You're just loving it. You don't have a care in the world. He says, you were just you had your little floaties on in a pool, a cesspool of evil and wickedness, and you were just enjoying it like there was nothing else in the world. This is a picture of me. This is a picture of you outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to remember, you need to see who you were without Christ. We need to understand that. See, as believers, we need to embrace and you need to embrace the reality of your personal brokenness and your sin. Sometimes in, a, in the body of Christ, we spend way too much time talking about the brokenness and sin of others. The brokenness and sin in our culture. What, what would we expect if people don't know Christ? They're not going to look like Christ. So we spend all our time on movie stars and politicians and all this stuff and maybe on others. But we've got to embrace our personal brokenness. We've got to look squarely in the mirror of God's word and say, that's me. That's me. When you do that, 
when you when you get your sin, when, when you own that for what it is, you'll never again say in your life, well, at least I'm not like so and so. At least I mean, I know I struggle with X, Y and Z and I know that's bad, but at least I don't. Man, when you come to know Christ in, in, in a greater way and see him more clearly and see yourself in the light of Christ, you'll never say anything like that because you understand, man, it is only by the ridiculous grace of God that he let me in, that he loved me when I hated him. It's, it's, it's a ridiculous grace that God has to allow that. See, the gospel has no lasting effect on pretty good people. If, if that's where you're at, like, like I'm not, at least I'm not, I'm not so bad. That I, I'm telling you, the gospel won't take a deep root in your life. Understand who you are and who you were outside of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, you need to see what Jesus has done for you. You need to see clearly. You've got to see what Jesus has done for you. Look at verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He has reconciled you. He took the one, you who were so alienated and apart from God, and he brought you back into right relationship with himself. That's what Christ has done for you. He, he took someone who hated God, who wanted nothing to do with God, and he, he brought you back into re relationship. How did he do it? He did it by taking on a body of flesh and dying on an old rugged cross. You know, God is, someone used to say, God is God all by himself. He can do whatever he wants because he's God. And that's true. But God is limited by one thing. It's nothing outside of him, but he's limited by his own character. So we can say, well, God could just stay in heaven, chill, receive worship, and God could just wave his hand over planet earth and say, I just forgive them. I just love them so much. Aren't they cute? I just love them. They must not be looking at some of us here, right? Aren't they cute? Aren't they just wonderful? They're not, he's, he, if he said that, he wouldn't even be telling the truth right there, right? So God doesn't do that. He can't do that because he's not only loving and merciful, but he's holy and he's good and he's righteous. And he's just and he's true. And so his character demands justice. And so his justice demands that he takes on a body like yours and mine with, with blood flowing through it, with muscles and skin and tendons and organs and all of this, that he takes on a human body and suffers the indignity of the worst method of death that the world had ever devised. And he dies on that cross, and it wasn't only the, 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 the death and all that went into that from the people that were around it and what he physically went through, but the Father himself pours out his eternal wrath that was on your sin and my sin and your sin and your sin and your sin. All of the wrath that was deserved for us, he pours out 
on Jesus. What a God. What a loving God. When we understand that kind of love, what he's done for us, we're, we're, we're not the same anymore. He says he, he's done that for us, and look what he does. Not only does he pour out his life that way, but he says in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Holy means to be set apart for God's purpose alone. Blameless is a word that was used in the Old Testament to mean without any blemish. So when a sacrifice and an offering was offered in the Old Testament, it was one without blemish. You couldn't offer a lamb that had something defiling it. There was something wrong with it. You could only give one that was perfect in every way. And Jesus said, I'm offering you without blemish. Do you look in the mirror and see that? Do you, think uh, do you look through your life and say, I'm without blemish? Probably not. And then lastly, he says, not only without blemish, but above reproach. That word means that you are above uh, any accusation that could ever be made about you. No charges will stick. Whatever charge the enemy or anyone else wants to hurl your way, it doesn't stick. How is that possible? It's not possible by your record. It's not possible by what you did uh, before you were a Christian, while you're a Christian, or when you think you're getting really good someday as a Christian. There's holes in that record. There's problems with that record. But it's possible because when, Je when, when, when God's wrath was poured out on Jesus for your sin, Jesus also gave his perfect righteousness to you. And in God's sight, when God opens up the book of life and he sees Tommy, he sees Harriet, or he sees any of us, he looks out and the record is perfect obedience at every time, in every temptation, with the devil in the wilderness, with every temptation that I ever faced, he never failed once. He gave you his record. That's what God has done. That's what God has done. So I don't know, for me, the older I get, the more I, I'm realizing that my life as a believer, it needs to be focused on gratitude for what God has done for me. The, one of the ways that sin works in a primary way is sin will always get you to want what you cannot have. That's just like a basic principle of sin. Go back to Genesis 3, look through the whole book. You'll see it over and over again. Sin wants you, sin moves you to want what you don't have. And when you do that, you cannot and you do not live a life of gratitude. But when you remember who you were before Christ, and when you think about for a little while what he's done for you, then, then gratitude becomes a, a reality, an ongoing reality in your life, and it gives you a huge buffer against the enemy and against sin. Brothers and sisters, as believers, we want to see God grow us as, as men and women of gratitude who are able to overcome sin in this world. Last thing that we'll look at. We also need to see what Jesus calls you to. See what 
he's done for you, but also what does he call you to do? Verse 23, he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. I'll stop right there. There's an if here, isn't there? A lot of times we don't like ifs in the Bible. I I wish there were no ifs. But but it's a warning. And and as a matter of fact, he says, if indeed. So there's there's an emphasis there. It's called an, an emphatic particle. If indeed, he says, you continue in the faith. So the warning here to the Colossians who are beginning to look at other gods and other systems and other ways potentially to get them through. He says, God has done all of this for you if indeed you continue in the faith. He doesn't say if you never sin again. If God said that, we're all in trouble. The Epiphany Fellowship will be gone real quick, right? But he says, if you continue in the faith, and look at what this faith does. He said, it's stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Stable, steadfast faith. It doesn't shift from the hope of the gospel. You know, we, we, we live in a time, and, and look, I know it myself, when when. When certain things happen in life and I get rocked, I, I begin to feel unstable. I, I'm just talking to myself. No one else here has ever felt that way. When, when, when life brings some things in that you just didn't see coming, your stability I- is challenged and is deeply challenged. But he says, here's the way to be stable. You continue in the faith and you don't shift from the hope of the gospel. He's just not using a word. He's, he's saying the gospel, what God has done for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember that. You continue in that faith. You, you, you remember that way. Let, let, let me give kind of a crazy illustration. There's a song that I've been hearing a little bit lately and it's been out for a while. I just call it the happy song. Some of y'all know that song. And... Um, you know, I have to admit, when I hear that song, I start tapping my toes sometimes. You know the song I'm talking about? What's his name? Pharrell? Yeah, Pharrell Williams. You know, you start hearing that song, and you're talking about clap along. <laughs> That's the gospel version, clap along. <laughs> he says, clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. I'm like, yeah, that's good. I have no idea what it means, but that's good. What does that mean, a room without a roof? What if it's raining? Would I be clapping? Would I be happy? I don't know. But, but, but like the whole ethos of the song, right? Clap up because I'm happy. Clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. Clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth, he says. Oh, gosh, that's a word problem right there, right? And I'm not trying to take the happy song away from anybody. I'm just trying to get you to look at it and what it's saying. Because Jesus said, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. (laughs) Happiness ain't the truth. It's not. It's not. Happiness is not the truth. There's another old song. Mahalia Jackson sung it years ago. It's called He's Sweet I Know. 
And the lyric to that goes, he's sweet, I know, he's sweet, I know. Storm clouds may rise, strong winds may blow. But I'll tell the world wherever I go that I've found a Savior and he's sweet, I know. See, I found it in the Savior, not in happiness, not in happiness for its own sake, in joy for its own sake. There is like a weak gospel that goes out, a weak, it's, I hate to call it a gospel at all, but Paul talked about another gospel, right? A weak gospel that kind of says, like, you know, if you're a believer, just take the lemons that life gives you and make it into lemonade. And I, I don't mean to, you know, we got Dallas people here right now, but I just have a little Texas voice when I say that. Take the lemons and make it into lemonade. Like, you can take tragedy. You can take horrible things that happen in life, put a little sugar in it and mix it up and it's okay. No. People we love die. Untimely deaths. It's happened to many of us in this room. People are tragically hurt and abused in many ways in this world. People lose everything in a moment. Think about some of the calamities, the tornadoes and the tsunamis. Lose not only all their stuff, but many, may, maybe many they love. I mean, tragedies are all around us. And if what we have says, take the lemons and make them into lemonade, that's not going to work too well. So that's not what believers are called to. Gospel stability does not mean that you emotionally flatline, that you're never hurt, bothered, upset, angry, mad. It does mean that all of the emotional and difficult bombshells that you face in life, you process those through the lens of faith and you season them with the truth of the gospel. And God strengthens you to make it through another day. Life isn't the happy song. What you see is what you get. My prayer today as we close is that you will see the reality of your need to see Jesus better. What is hindering you from seeing him well? The sun is 93 million miles away from the earth. It's huge. I think I read somewhere a million earths could fit into the sun as large as it is, if you can imagine that, right? The moon is a little satellite that goes around the earth. It's much smaller than our planet compared to the sun. It's nothing. Has anyone ever experienced a solar eclipse? In the middle of daytime, the, sun, the, the, the moon aligns in front of the sun in just such a way that darkness covers everything. The moon is little. The sun is huge. But many of us are having eclipses day after day after day in terms of our seeing the Son of God, Jesus, the preeminent, the only great God for who He is. What's eclipsing your vision of Christ? What is it? Whatever it is, you've got to get rid of it. You've got to get rid of it. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful and grateful today that you alone stand. 
and nothing and no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth can challenge who you are. You are king and God. You are Lord and sovereign. And there is nothing that can come close to you. So Lord, I pray today that as your people, that you would help us to see you for who you are. I pray, Lord God, that we would make it our life's ambition and goal, and even this week and even this day, to look into the face of Christ, to focus on Jesus and what he's done. Lord God, that other things would fade away in their order of importance and that you alone would be the great and mighty one for whom we live and for whom we will die. So, Lord, watch over us and keep us. Bless this word to your church and have your way, we pray in Jesus' name.